what is up everyone welcome back to the final girl on sixth avenue podcast my name is carolyn smith hilmer and i am sixth avenue's very own final girl and today we are still it seems like a long time but we really are we are still working our way through the top 100 of my favorite horror movies and today i I think it's probably safe to assume on like the precedence of the past episodes that I've released regarding the same topic that I will probably only get through roughly 20 movies today. So that means that I'm going to get through as many movies as I possibly can today in the hopes that there will only be one more episode on this after this one. So I want to do it that way. So that way there's not like another two week period where you're waiting for the top 10. Um, But on the other hand, I can kind of see the appeal of giving you the top 10 in its own like solo single episode. That way I can go more in depth into each of them. I won't feel rushed. I don't know. I'm still working out the kinks on that because this is the first time I've ever done something like this. So if you've made it this far, thank you so, so much for sticking around. I appreciate everybody's support so incredibly much. And, um, as you all know, the podcasting world, it seems to be pretty saturated. Like there's always new content coming out. There's always somebody saying, oh, I have a podcast too. But I recently learned that the number of people or number of podcasts out there, excuse me, that make it past like episode 10 is like less than 20%. So I've made it pretty far. Um, I'm almost at 20 episodes. And I'm really proud of that. And, um, you know, as everybody who knows me knows that I didn't do this or start this with the intent on becoming rich and famous and all the like, I, I don't want to be famous. I, that Nothing sounds worse to me than that. But I did start this with just the love and passion that I have for the horror genre. And um, I'm a decent writer. And I've always been looking for some artistic output with regard to horror and whenever I talk to people about horror, they can clearly see it's very, you know, visible in my face, like how excited I am and how enthralled I am in the genre, but it's a lot easier for me and more fluid and natural for me to talk about it rather than write it. And when it comes to writing, I of course couldn't do an episode without talking about morbidly beautiful network, but you guys should check out the stuff on Morbidly Beautiful Network. And even if it's not the podcast, you guys really, really need to read some of the articles and the reviews. They're very insightful. There are many discussions on films that have not made it to America yet, films that have not been released yet. There's discussions um, in defense of certain films that maybe didn't receive like a super positive or glowing review out the gate. And... Um, The authors over there on morbidlybeautiful.com will teach you and kind of walk you through how like they seem to find good in everything, even movies that I don't particularly like. So go to morbidlybeautiful.com, check out all the other content there. And with that, we are going to start the episode. We're wasting only four minutes and we're going to start with number 50. Number 50, The Ring, 2002, PG-13, one hour, 55 minute runtime pretty long movie. Um, I would say that it definitely warrants being this long. I don't think that it's too long. I don't think it's too short. And actually 
They pack a lot of content. I didn't find this movie to be slow in any way. I love this movie. I haven't seen it in a number of years. I've been waiting to watch it with my husband because I am under the impression that he's never seen it before. And I really think this movie is important. It's monumental. It's one of those movies that, you know, there's a lot of discussion within the horror community about Japanese horror and how different it is. And, um, and I agree with that. I do. It is. I do think it's different and it is different. And it's so enthralling and so all-encompassing that I think this is a great place to start. Like, maybe you've never seen a lot of Japanese horror or you're not exposed to it through various things like anime or uh, manga. But, you know, this would be a great place for you to start if you wanted to get into it. So this is about a journalist that has to investigate a mysterious videotape which seems to cause the death of anyone one week to the day after they view it. This was directed by Gore Verbinski. It was written by Aaron Kruger, Koji Suzuki, Hiroshi Takahashi, and starring Naomi Watts, Martin Henderson, and Brian Cox. Um, The movie right out of the gate tells you what it's about. There's two girls, they're talking, they're like, hey, did you hear about this this crazy thing that people are talking about, this urban legend where people watch this videotape and then you die seven days later. And this girl's like, yeah, I heard about it. I watched that video last week. I don't know what's going to happen. And then literally two seconds later, she dies. So great movie. Highly suggest, highly recommend, especially if, like I said, you're looking for an introduction to the genre. Number 49, It Part 1. I I struggle with it because, like, where to rank it. I think it is really, it's a really complex movie. And I'm sure most of that comes from the source material. As most of you are aware, it's a Stephen King novel that this is based on. And um, this is when Stephen King was in his, like, height, height, height of his coke addiction and his drug addiction and his alcoholism. And he reportedly himself admits that he doesn't remember writing a lot of the, a lot of the chapters in this book. Like he doesn't remember writing a lot of it. And I think that's what makes it so complex is that the ending is a little odd. Okay. But the stories of each child involved are so detailed And you can't help but feel bad for each and every one of them in different ways. And what I really like about It Part 1 is the use of the kids. Like, doing it from the kids' perspective. Because It Part 2 is from the perspective of these people when they're adults. And it just brings a different, like, viewpoint. A different um, lens through which to view These types of occurrences, you know, if you're a child, it's sometimes like, well, who would believe me anyway, even if I told somebody that this is happening, like that can be used for any number of things. But when you're trying to tell like your parents, like, um, there's literally a clown that is, wants to kill me. Um, like we know John Wayne Gacy, right? So we know that like that could possibly happen, but the likelihood of there just being a clown that can shapeshift and transform into anything is probably... Probably not super common. So in the summer of 1989, a group of bullied kids band together 
to destroy a shape-shifting monster which disguises itself as a clown and preys on the children of Derry, their small main town. This was directed by Andy Muschietti, written by Chase Palmer, starring Bill Skarsgård, Jaden Mattel, Finn Wolfhard. There's a lot of, you know, big names. Sophia Lillis, um, Jeremy Ray Taylor. There's, you know, there's some names in here for sure. And um, one thing that's interesting about this movie is that Stephen King didn't make a cameo in here. I really thought he would. If you've seen Creepshow, he makes cameo in Creepshow. Um, but anyway, this movie is one that I think is a good introduction for those of you who are looking to get more into like jump scares. There's a lot of jump scares in this movie. That's not everybody's cup of tea. My husband hates them. He doesn't like this movie. I made him see it with me. It's a whole thing. He'll never forget it. I, we took a blanket to the movie theater. I don't think he actually watched the film at all. Um, yeah. But if you are looking for like a good jump scare, not like a cheesy one, this is very tasteful. And also sometimes I feel like whenever we use kids in horror movies, we use them in ways that they don't really apply. Like it, just, it doesn't make sense to use things from the perspective of a kid. And sometimes... Even with Stephen King, I get annoyed with his stories that they're all from the perspective of a child. I mean, really, like I'm not a kid anymore. I don't really care, but these kids were so funny and so entertaining that it made it totally worth it. Number 48, Paranormal Activity, 2007 release rated R, one hour, 26 minute runtime. After moving into a suburban home, a couple becomes increasingly disturbed by a nightly demonic presence written and directed by Oren Pelly starring Katie Featherston, Mika Sloat, Mark Fredericks. This movie was made for nothing and I'm talking nothing. These people let their friend film a movie of them in their own freaking house. How genius is that? I mean, that's when we talk about how little movies cost, I mean, really that cost nothing to make. And the two people, Mika and Katie, like, they they have no acting experience. Like, they have no prior experience at all. And this movie is so tasteful when it comes to found footage. I feel like when people think found footage, the first thing they think of is The Blair Witch Project, which I enjoy. I do. And I don't enjoy it as much as I enjoy Paranormal Activity. Most people learn a lot about what what found footage could be by watching this movie. It could have been, you know, found footage doesn't have to be cheesy. It doesn't have to be corny. It doesn't have to be like, oh, all these things are happening off camera, which was, I think, a lot of people's problem with the Blair Witch Project is that you never actually see anything. But in Paranormal Activity, you do. I mean, you don't see the ghost, but you see the things that are happening. For example, like... Katie will get out of the bed and she stands up and walks um, or gets like dragged out of the room, like fully pulled out of the room. Like we see these things happening. It's not like the camera goes down and we don't see it. So it's still very, very powerful. And um, I have fond memories of this movie. I've probably seen it 20 times. Number 47, Suspiria. And no, I'm not talking about the original. I'm talking about the new one. I'm talking about 2018 
rated R, two-hour, 32-minute runtime, Suspiria by Luca Guadagnino, who I absolutely adore. And um, this movie is one of those movies where you watch it and you sit back and you think, hmm, I think I'm going to kill the person who told me about it. So please don't take a hit out on me. Um, I don't know that I, I don't know that any of my viewers can really afford to take a hit out on me because I'm I'm pretty pretty smart cookie. You might take that might take him a long time to find me, but um, when it comes to this movie, you need to definitely be okay with a slow burn. You need to be okay with body horror. You need to be okay with confusing camera angles. There's Pretty much all the scenes in this take place in one ballet academy and inside of these studios are completely mirrored, right? They have mirrors all around because they're a dance studio. Um, That said, they use the mirrors with the filming. So things are, you never really truly know what direction you're looking at. And so it was meant to disorient the viewer and it does so incredibly effectively. Um, A darkness swirls at the center of a world-renowned dance company. One that will engulf the artistic director, an ambitious young dancer, and a grieving psychotherapist. Some will succumb to the nightmare. Others will finally wake up. Yeah, this this Luca Guadagnino is probably my favorite type of Luca Guadagnino. He is somebody who's just so incredibly talented. I mean... I love this movie. I love Bones and All. I love Call Me By Your Name. I mean, he can do anything. This movie is particularly artsy. This movie is particularly artsy. It really, truly is. Like, there's no getting away from that. No getting around it. If that's not your cup of tea, I would skip it. I I wouldn't say it's like a, a particularly intelligent movie where, like, you have to really be on the look for all these things. It's not really focused that way, um, but it is just about the combination and parallels of three different stories um, that are all taking place at once. And Chloe Grace Moritz, Tilda Swinton is in this movie. God, I love her. I love her. Like, how could you not? Um, Dakota Johnson is our main character. I just love it. I love ballet. I love the the dark you know, take on the, on the dance academy. It was so, it's so incredibly effective. I, I, it's one that I watch over and over. I believe the first time I watched this, I was in college and I made my roommates watch it with me. After I tell these stories, I wonder why they still agreed to live with me. You know, I must have some pretty redeeming qualities, but, um, we had all watched this and I remember we stayed awake cause it, it's two and a half hours. It's long. But I remember after we watched it, everybody looked at me and they just said, I'm going to go to bed. And to this day, I haven't, I haven't spoken to any of them about it. So if any of you guys hear this, 1007, 1007 hoes, uh, reach out and let me know. Number 46, Misery, 1990, rated R, one hour, 47 minutes. I'm going to hit you with another Stephen King. Here it is. After a famous author is rescued from a car crash by a fan of his novels, he comes to realize that the care he is receiving is only the beginning of a nightmare of captivity and abuse. Directed by Rob Reiner, 
written by Stephen King. He wrote the novel. William Goldman wrote the screenplay, starring James Caan and Kathy Bates. This is Kathy Bates like you've never seen her before, because when I think of Kathy Bates, I, as like a young child, you know, my memories of, of what I watched her in when I was younger, I think of Kathy Bates as fried green tomatoes. Like this woman who starts tearing down the walls in her house because she's unhappy with them and she buys one of those trampolines because she's unhappy with her body and she visits this woman in the nursing home hospital all the time and brings her fried green tomatoes because she loves them like and listens to her story like that's when I think of Kathy Bates but this Kathy Bates is a nutcase so this guy James can he is an author Stephen King wrote this book by the way um, I know a lot about him please I'm a wealth of knowledge I mean really please anybody can use me as an encyclopedia for horror but particularly Stephen King I know a lot about um he wrote this book either during or shortly after his stay in a hospital where he was also um, recovering from something. And just the feeling of being trapped, the feeling of not being able to escape this room, this captivity that you're in, even though like he wasn't there by force. Um, it's just like recommended, obviously, that if something bad happens to your body or you, your body faces some trauma that you stay in the hospital for a little while, right? So you can get the care that you need. But anyway... Kathy Bates finds this guy. He just got in a car accident. She's a nut, okay? And so she tells him, like, I know that you said you're almost done with the the Misery series, but I want to find out what happens to Misery's child. Like, I want to find out what happens when her child grows up, and, like, I need you to write this book. And he's like, I mean, okay, like, that's kind of strange, but I'll write it, um, I guess, because if you won't let me leave until I do, then I guess I don't have a choice. So he, like, starts writing it. She's not happy with it. She gets upset because he's upset and he wants to leave and he tries to leave and he tries to use the phone and he can't use the phone because she cuts the phone lines and, you know, she's a nurse and she has a car so she can leave during the day and then she makes it to where he can't walk anymore by putting, you know, a wooden block in between his ankles and hitting him with, hitting him in the ankle with a a hammer so like it hobbles him it breaks both of his ankles so he can't walk anymore and it's just the most claustrophobic movie you'll ever watch in your entire life number 45 under the skin 2013 rated r one hour 48 minutes a mysterious young woman seduces lonely men in the evening hours in scotland however Events lead her to begin a process of self-discovery. Directed by Jonathan Glazer, written by Walter Campbell, Jonathan Glazer, and Michael Faber, starring Scarlett Johansson. You have heard me talk about this movie before. I have a whole episode on it. I really enjoy this movie. It's um, one of those movies that, like, I I don't know that I'll be rewatching a lot. But it definitely gives me femme fatale, which I love. I love, honestly, I love a strong female lead. Like, I just do. I, and I love how Scarlett Johansson's character is so empty. She's so blank when she's, you know, picking up these men. And it's almost like she doesn't really show emotions in the movie at all. But when she's picking up these men, you can see. Like, how, uh, you can see how important it is to her and how frustrating 
it is for her when she can't find one to pick up. Um, she, you know, kidnaps these men and she takes them home and, and with the, like, under the guise of wanting to have sex with them or hook up with them. And then, you know, she, she wears their skin and that's cool. That's fine with me. Um, but she kills them and yeah, it's creative. It's original. It's A24. Who doesn't love A24? They just released a printed and bound a copy of the screenplay of this book or of this movie, excuse me, and I can't wait to buy it. Um, yeah, I love it. Listen to my episode on this if you want to hear more. Number 44, It Follows. 2014 release, rated R, one hour, 40 minutes. A young woman is followed by an unknown supernatural force after a sexual encounter. Directed and written by David Robert Mitchell, starring Micah Monroe, Keir Gilchrist, Olivia Lucardi. Again, listen to my episode on this if you want to hear more. I absolutely love this movie. It is probably like the epitome of an indie movie in the best way possible. I love that the colors are muted. I love that it's shot very dreamlike. I love that I never know what time of day it even is, hardly. I mean, you never really truly know if it's like evening, morning, like, because the sun never is out. Um, I love that at any point in time, you know that she could be killed or, you know, someone around her could be killed by these supernatural forces after she has a sexual encounter with another boy at her high school. Um, I, I, yeah, everything about this movie is just smart and well done. And I definitely wish more people saw it and more people gave it a chance. Number 43, Antichrist. Not rated. That sounds about right. 2009 release, one hour, 48 minutes. But hey, the IFC, they they were cool with it. They're cool with this movie. A grieving couple retreat to their cabin in the woods, hoping to repair their broken hearts and troubled marriage. But nature takes its course and things go from bad to worse. Written and directed by Lars von Trier, Starring Willem Dafoe and Charlotte Gainsbourg. I have so many mixed feelings about this movie. This is as elevated as it gets. The characters don't have names. Willem Dafoe's character's name is he. Charlotte Gainsbourg's character's name is she. That's what we have. There are two people in this movie. There was a doctor, maybe who maybe said one or two lines, but really that's about it. Um, at the beginning of the movie, to just to just prepare you, I guess, for what you're going to see, um, Lars von Trier, right, we know he got in a lot of trouble. He said some things that everybody can agree he should never have said. People left Cannes Film Festival during the showing of this movie, not because of how much they hated him, which is the interesting part, but because of the subject matter at hand and 
this is considered to be one of the most shocking films to ever come out of the Cannes Film Festival. In the beginning of the movie, I would say maybe the first 10 minute sequence is one, one sequence of events. Um, and it is, I, if I remember, it's an all in black and white. And if you like Lars von Trier or you know of him and are familiar with his work, then you'll be very um, well-versed in the fact that he has a very unique style of directing. And the opening sequence here is is all slow motion. It's filled with dread. It is everything that you expect from this man. The... Um, the couple, the married couple, he and she, are in the shower, and they are having sex. And Lars von Trier thought it was incredibly important that um, a prosthetic not be used, okay, for the sexual intercourse in this film. So that is Willem Dafoe's actual penis, and they are actually having sex um that is real not simulated at all okay it's real so that may be why a lot of people had a problem with it that's not why i have a problem with this movie um so yeah they're having sex while they're having sex they're busy in the shower they're having sex the laundry machine one of them is running um so they can't hear they're in the shower and the baby monitor is not anywhere near the shower, so they can't, like, hear what's going on. And their child, and I'm not spoiling anything for you here because this is, this is some real shit. Because um, it happens at the beginning. They don't hide it from you. The child is big enough to, like, walk and climb, but not, not so big that it doesn't fit into, like, a crib anymore. So the window's open in the child's room, and it's on, like, the second floor. And the kid just crawls out the window. Um, Parents are in the shower. Kid crawls out the window, falls, dies. And so then we talk about, at the beginning, you know, she goes in the hospital, the mom, and she's, you know, freaking out. Her kid is dead. What does she do? And she feels responsible, of course, because she's the parent, and that's a whole ordeal in and of itself. And so whenever, um, you know, her husband is, we find out, is a psychiatrist, and he's like, well, I know we're not really, like, I'm not supposed to take you on as a patient, but I feel like it's my responsibility and so they go out into their cabinet, or cabin, excuse me, not their cabinet, their cabin in the woods, and it takes a lot for her to get there. Like, she, Charlotte Gainsbourg's character really, like, gives you a good, um, never as good as Tony Collette and Hereditary would give you, but Charlotte Gainsbourg's character here gives you what I would consider a really well-thought and well-intentioned uh, view of what grief would look like in the loss of a child. And I don't want to give too much away, but this film is very controversial and, um, I would, I would not watch it casually. I would say it's one of those ones that you want to, um, proceed with caution. How about that? I will do an episode on this soon, I'm sure. This is just one of those movies that's like, 
what the fuck do you even say about it? Because, you know, you watch it and it's almost like you don't even know what to think. Like, you don't even know whose side you're on. So it's pretty complex. Maybe maybe I uh, I will do that sooner rather than later. Number 42, Men. 2022 release, rated R, one hour and 40 minute runtime. A young woman goes on a solo vacation to the English countryside following the death of her ex-husband. Written and directed by Alex Garland, starring Jesse Buckley and Rory Kinnear. Again, I guess this is just the section where I tell you, like, fuck off, just go listen to my own separate episode about this. Um, but really, you should do that anyway. But, uh, yeah, this movie, I love this movie. Um, it is odd that Alex Garland wrote it and directed it with such, um, like, good intention. I mean, I don't want to say it's we- It's odd. Like, it's it's just interesting. He really wanted to depict what it was like to be a woman. Like, he understands as a man, he will not be tasked or faced with the same things that women are confronted with in everyday life. This woman, she... Her ex-husband, you know, commits suicide in front of her, and she witnesses him falling from the top of the building because he jumps, and um, she finds him dead, and she holds his dead body, and, you know, she goes to the countryside to escape, and then as soon as she gets there, what's supposed to be very peaceful, she um, soon uncovers that all the men in the town, she's the only woman, but all the men in the town are hostile toward her, they want to kill her, they want to have sex with her. Um, no one there is on her side. It's very interesting. I love the setting. It takes place in a beautiful house. Every actor is incredible. They're acting with their life. Like, their life depends on it. It's performances like you've never seen. Number 41, Dogtooth. Yeah, I have an episode on this one too. You should listen to it. Um, This is 2009 release, not rated, one hour, 37 minute runtime. A controlling, manipulative father locks his three adult offspring in a state of perpetual childhood by keeping them prisoner with the sprawling family compound. This was directed by Yorgos Lanthimos, written by him as well. Um, starring Michelle Valley, Angeliki Papulia, Cristo Sergichu, and I, when it comes to this movie, when people ask me about it, I usually don't know what to say, <laughs> because I love this movie, but I don't think it's for everyone, particularly whenever it comes to, like, how, uh, well, I guess the main point is that it's not in English, it's in Greek. So sometimes I think whenever the, whenever you're reading a movie instead of watching the movie and like, you know, taking in all of the things through auditory, um, through hearing it, like you you have to read it because I'm assuming not everybody I know speaks Greek. 
you you lose some of the meaning i think so it's definitely one of the one of those movies you have to pay attention to but this movie is funny more than anything it's hilarious the way the dad interacts with the kids like for example the dad and the mom teach their three kids things like they had a brother but their other brother was bad and he left the house so he lives on the other side of this like really tall fence that that they have in their backyard um it like they also teach their kids that like words mean things that are different so like it would be the equivalent of like me having a a glass of water and calling it like a pencil sharpener like they use incorrect words so like they're always confused and like it's just it's very funny it's very sad at the same time and i guess maybe it's fucked up that i think it's funny but uh i think the first time i watched it it wasn't the second and third time i watched it i was like oh this is hilarious like this is genius and when it comes to this movie compared to some of Yorgos Lanthimos' other movies, um, this is probably my second favorite. I really enjoy this movie. Number 40, Midsommar. Man, we're just rolling with A24 movies too. You can just... Why does it... I don't know why A24 doesn't want to sponsor me. I literally live on the same... Mm. Maybe I shouldn't say that. I live very close to the A24 headquarters in New York. Midsommar, 2019 release, rated R, two-hour, 28-minute runtime, written and directed by Ari Aster, starring Florence Pugh, Jack Rayner. A couple travels to Northern Europe to visit a rural hometown's fabled Swedish Midsummer Festival. What begins as an idyllic retreat quickly devolves into an increasingly violent and bizarre competition at the hands of a pagan cult. Man, nobody does grief quite like Ari Aster either. Um, It's interesting how in this movie the um, main character is... I don't want to say weak, because like when you think about in Hereditary, like Toni Collette's character... Because that movie's also about grief. That's the only reason why I'm making these comparisons. But, like, in Hereditary, I wouldn't consider Toni Collette's character to be a weak character. I would consider her to be a very strong character and, like, a presence throughout the movie. She's snappy. She's with it. She's everything of the sort. Florence Pugh in this movie is very weak. The very beginning of the movie, she is depicted by her boyfriend to his group of friends as being needy and, you know, like just too much for him and he wants to break up with her but he can't break up with her or he feels like he can't because he doesn't want her to spiral her sister died um or her sister always like talks about how she's going to kill herself and i I think she does um and at the beginning of the movie like her parents die her sister hooks up like a these tubes with like a mask on to each of the parents while they're laying in bed and they inhale you know straight carbon carbon monoxide and it's her whole life comes crashing down her boyfriend sucks he has a friend who's swedish who's like an exchange student he's coming you know um he's visiting america and he's saying like hey i'm taking a trip where all the guys are going and you should come with us too we're going to sweden uh my my like commune has this 
summer festival every year and I would love it if you would come. And so they're all also going into like grad programs, like master's programs at school. And so like one of them is going because he wants to write a thesis about this group. And um, there's a lot of different reasons why people are going, but it's really just interesting to see how Florence Pugh's character is so rich with grief and how she then finds family in this community. Number 39, The Fourth Kind. 2009 release, PG-13, one hour, 38 minutes. This movie I haven't seen in quite a while, but I did just watch it recently, um, about a year ago. A thriller involving an ongoing unsolved mystery in Alaska, where one town has seen an extraordinary number of unexplained disappearances during the past 40 years, and there are accusations of a federal cover-up. Written and directed by Ulatunde Tsunanmi, I hope I said that correctly, starring Mila Govovich, Elias Koteas, Will Patton. This is a movie about a... Um, about a therapist who does also practice hypnosis and she goes to people's homes and watches videos of, of other patients and her own patients. And we get to see these videos as well of people talking about their experiences being abducted or having like these aliens or extraterrestrial creatures in their home, what they experienced after. And she does this all under like the hypnosis. So she hypnotizes them and then they talk about it. It's an original story. I think it's like, you know, one of those things where we all kind of think about that. I'd be lying if I said I didn't think uh, that maybe there was something else out there. I don't think that... I'm not too proud to admit that I believe that we're the only people, you know, in the world. There's no other beings anywhere else. But this is based on actual, um, actual stories as well, which makes it even more interesting. It didn't really receive like a great, uh, it didn't have a great reception when it came out. And that makes me sad because, and I think it, it was probably just because it's filmed kind of like a found footage movie and like those typically don't get like great raving reviews. But if you like those types of movies, I would definitely recommend. Number 38, Mother, 2017 release, rated R, two hours, one minute. It's Darren Aronofsky, so you know that it had to be two hours and one minute. It couldn't just be two hours. A couple's relationship is tested when uninvited guests arrive at their home, disrupting their tranquil existence. Written and directed by Darren Aronofsky, the genius behind so many movies, including um, Requiem for a Dream. Starring Jennifer Lawrence, Javier Bardem, and Ed Harris, there are so many things about this movie that are just not okay. Um, they're just not. And, oh, and Michelle Pfeiffer, excuse me, how could I forget? And again, we have the epitome of, you know, elevated horror. Jennifer Lawrence's character's name is Mother. Javier Bardem plays him. Ed Harris plays man. Michelle Pfeiffer plays woman. Brian Gleason plays younger brother. Uh, it, you know, 
Why would they have names? It wouldn't make any sense. It would it would actually be more difficult if they had names. And so um, it's just much easier to call them by a title or like a role. I, I totally agree with you. Thank you for bringing that up. It was such a good point. So basically these this couple moves into this beautiful house that's kind of in the middle of nowhere. And then all of a sudden these these people just start showing up. They show up. They are not invited and the husband Javier Bardem is just like oh my god yeah you traveled all this way please come into my house that would be wonderful if you came in and Jennifer Lawrence is like why the fuck are you here I don't know who you are I didn't invite you I don't want you in my house and she finds out she's pregnant and um with each group of people that show up we get what I would... I don't want to give it away. I don't. There's some uh, allegories here. Uh, some illusions, if you will. And Jennifer Lawrence particularly said that she had a difficult time with this movie. And I, I can't remember if her and Darren Aronofsky were dating at the time that this was being filmed. But I know that that would make this just like horrendously difficult. The subject matter of this movie regarding the child... She had some actual trauma that she had to work through after the ending of this movie because she was having such a difficult time separating the emotions of her character from her own. And her performance is really powerful. I don't think that this is a movie that she wants to talk about anymore in interviews. I don't think she wants to talk about Darren Aronofsky anymore in interviews. I can't say I blame her. This movie's confusing. This movie requires a lot of thought. This movie is one you have to pay attention to. It starts out slow. Give it a chance. The ending is in, is worth it. Number 37. Sinister. 2012. Rated R. One hour. 50 minutes. A controversial true crime writer finds a box of Super 8 home movies in his new home, revealing that the murder case he is currently researching could be the work of an unknown serial killer whose legacy dates back to the 1960s. This is written and directed by Scott Derrickson and stars Ethan Hawke, Juliet Rylance, and James Ransone. This movie is... Definitely not confusing. Like, I don't know why I followed um, up Mother with this. This movie is pretty straightforward. His family, like this, there's this guy. He has his family with him. They have two young kids and a wife. And he's like, yo, I wrote this book and people hate me. We got to move. Okay, so they move. And he writes things in um, that like combat like popular opinion of law enforcement and like like things that law enforcement do wrong which like we all know like they don't take criticism very well sometimes and they get a little power hungry but he put it in writing he published it people are mad he, he leaves he moves him and his family move he finds these super eight you know tapes and he starts playing them and the things that occur in these tapes are some things that Personally, I've never thought of before, I, and I, I've seen so many movies that I'm thinking, like, I have so much, like, content flowing around in my in my brain all the time that I sometimes think, like, oh, wow, like, I, I could see that happening, or, like, 
why hasn't anybody done this before? And I think I come up with like an original idea, but I just don't. And, um, the things in this are pretty original. Like for example, like one of the tapes that this guy plays, he puts in and there are these family and they're, they're hanging out and, um, you know, cut later, same tape. This family is being run over by a lawnmower and you're like super up close with the lawnmower and it scares the shit out of you. The audio that's a warning. The audio mastering in this movie, it needs some, some work because a lot of it is way louder than the other parts of the movie. But um, if you're looking for just like a pretty good like casual watch, I think this is a great option. This is something that will definitely scare you. Number 36, Audition. 1999 release, rated R, one hour, 55 minutes. Another Japanese horror for you. Great suggestion. Not sure this is a starting point. This may be like a middle point for you through your journey through Japanese horror, but wow. This this will get you there. A widower takes an offer to screen girls at a special audition arranged for him by a friend to find him a new wife. The one he fancies is not who she appears to be at all. Written and directed by Takashi Miike, the stars Ryo Ishibashi, Ihaishina, and Tetsu Sawaki. This movie is um, a ride, okay? So Audition takes you through many like leaps and bounds and hurdles. And just when you think that everything's cool and fine and dandy, it's just not. Yes, it's slow. Yes, it's worth the payoff. I don't want to give away the ending, but basically this guy, his wife dies and he has a son and um, his friend comes up with this idea to be like, hey, like, let's host a um, like an audition for like, like, let's fake an audition for a movie role and we'll audition some girls and we'll have them come in and it won't be weird to ask them questions because, you know, they think it's a movie audition, so it won't be weird at all. And this guy's like, yeah, okay, we should do that. Like, that would be wonderful. Like, I really would, I would love to meet someone. And he finds this girl and they go on a few dates and stuff. And she keeps asking him like, hey, what about the movie? I can't wait to be in a movie. I want to be in a movie so bad. Like, what? what's happening to it? And he keeps coming up with all these different excuses as to why he like doesn't, like it's being held up and he doesn't know and blah, blah, blah. Well, anyway, she, um, she's not too happy with that answer and she definitely lets him know so you should watch it and and check that check out um how unhappy she truly is okay number 35 today also along with me telling you just to listen to my own episode along with me just naming off a24 movies and along with me just naming off movies that my husband literally cannot sit through we're going to number 35 insidious 2010 release, PG-13, one hour, 43 minutes. I'm going to watch this right after I'm done recording. I haven't seen this movie in forever. I love this movie. A family looks to prevent evil spirits from trapping their comatose child in a realm called The Further. This is directed by James Wan, written by Lee Whannell, starring Patrick Wilson, Rose Byrne, Ty Simpkins... Um, Lynn Shea, 
Barbara Hershey. It has all the people that you could ever want in one movie. They are here. And um, essentially, there's a lovely family. Their son is very, very sick. He, his name is Dalton. Dalton is very sick. He is in a coma. No one can find a reason why he's in this coma. And they move into this beautiful home, and this house has some shit that is seriously wrong with it. I'm not talking like the foundation wasn't poured correctly. I'm talking like there is something in this house that is keeping this boy sick. It is putting the family in danger. It is such a great movie. Yes, it has jump scares all in it. The mu- the music is just fantastic. I don't think that I've seen a movie with better music in it. The music is so effective in this movie, in fact, that when I saw this movie in the theater, people started screaming and squirming during the music, when the music would play, even when they had no idea what they were going to see next. And even when the thing that they were shown after the music came, nothing was reacted to the way the music was. Again, casual watch, maybe. Uh, Depends on how casual you want to be. I've seen it so many times now that I can't wait to watch it again. Um, This movie is also sad, I would say. It's definitely like if you were a parent and you didn't know how to help, didn't know what to do, didn't know what was wrong with your kid, all the emotions that kind of go along with that. Again, this movie is... Probably Rose Byrne at her finest. Truly, I think this is actually the first movie I ever saw her in. And I just found her to be so compelling. She's beautiful. She is quick. She is... um, She's everything of the sort. And she plays a great mother character. Number 34. The Silence of the Lambs. I kind of struggled with where to put this one also because for many reasons I think that a generation older than me would put this higher for me I am gonna keep it here at at 34 it's a movie that I watch I don't really seek out re-watching it often the last time I re-watched it was whenever COVID had first started and I was with my husband we watched this and we were like when is the funny part? For some reason in our heads, we had remembered there being like a, a decent amount of comedic relief. And I think about an hour into the movie, I was like, you know what? I don't, I don't really think there is any because it just never gets better. 1991 release rated our one hour, 58 minute runtime. A young FBI cadet must receive the help of an incarcerated and manipulative cannibal killer to help catch another serial killer, a madman who skins his victims. This was directed by Jonathan Demme, written by uh, Ted Talley, starring Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins. What else is there to say? I mean, it's a classic. There's there's nothing else to say. You have this manipul- quote-unquote manipulative cannibal. Um, it's Anthony Hopkins. It's Sir Anthony Hopkins, excuse me. And he is 
playing a doctor, Dr. Hannibal Lecter, who's a psychiatrist. He's in jail. He's locked up for life. He he liked to eat people. What are you going to do? I mean, he likes what he likes. I don't... I've never had people meet, and I don't really ever want it. But that's what he wanted, and he went for it. And I honestly, I got to give it up to him. But anyway, anyway. So all that is to say that he is tasked with uh, or agrees to help this young FBI cadet played by Jodie Foster. And um, she's looking for a killer who skins his victims. And we soon uncover that this killer's name is Buffalo Bill. And Buffalo Bill, which is really sad, honestly, um, at the time, I think that this was a different, like, subject matter or looked through through a different lens. But now it's really sad to see him. And he is uh, a man who likes to uh, dress up as women. And I don't know that he wants to be a woman, but he definitely likes to express himself as a woman by kidnapping these women by either, like, luring them into their vans or into his van or, like, pretending to be injured or something of the sort, and he keeps them, um, they have to be a size 14, he has to keep them in his basement in, like, a giant hole that he dug that they can't crawl out of and makes them moisturize their skin every day, and then he kills them, and then he wears their skin. He keeps their skin as, like, a little suit for himself, and then, I guess, I'm under the impression that when that one starts to rot, then he just gets another person, and, you know, then he gets a new suit, and so on and so forth. This movie is a classic... I'm not going to give away the ending. I'm sorry. It's just too, too good and too scary. And, um, every time I watch this movie, I hold my breath until the very end. I will say that my favorite part of this movie is when Hannibal makes his little escape and he gets some, some meat he's been so hungry for. And he calls, he calls Jodie Foster at the end of the movie and says that he's about to have an old friend for dinner rather than saying he's going to have an old friend over for dinner. Um, and I think this movie is really smart and maybe, maybe that's the comic relief I was thinking of, but I didn't remember it being all the way at the end. Number 33, the evil dead, 1981. This is the only NC 17 movie that I've ever come across. I believe it's one hour and 25 minutes. Five friends travel to a cabin in the woods where they unknowingly release flesh possessing demons Written and directed by Sam Raimi, starring Bruce Campbell, Ellen Sandweiss, and Richard Demanicor. And when it comes to this movie, I think you just be prepared for, like, anything. I don't really think that there's anything in particular that I could tell you that would make you be like, oh, yeah, okay, that sounds great. I mean, it's just body horror at its finest. You have blood, you have guts, you have these these five people in the middle of nowhere in the woods and there's a tree, you know, and the tree that this is the movie with the tree that I would say famously, but I would, I guess maybe infamously, um, is tasked with, um, assaulting sexually a woman. I mean, this movie is just over the top. It was way ahead of its time. It had no business being as good as it is. So, but again, I, 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 I did pick the 1981 version strategically. I, I do think it's the best one. Number 32, Last House on the Left, 
1972. We're not with the remakes on these two, everybody. We are we are the originals till the day that we die. 1972 rated R, one hour, 24 minutes. The first ever episode that I recorded for this podcast that um, I actually haven't released. I haven't released it. It's, it was a practice episode just to see how I would do talking to myself because you really don't know how it's going to go when you sit and talk to only yourself for a little while. It sounds easy. It's really not. Because how do you keep a conversation going with yourself? I mean, I'm good at it, clearly, but I'm also an only child. I think that definitely helps. Anyway, uh, two teenage girls heading to a rock concert for one's birthday tried to score marijuana in the city where they are kidnapped and brutalized by a gang of psychopathic convicts. This was written and directed by none other than Wes Craven and starring Sandra Peabody, Lucy Grantham, David Hess. This is a movie that has, um, I mean, it's a rape revenge movie. There's no other way to describe it. It is a movie about these two young girls. It's, it's the daughter's birthday of this family, her and her friend that the parents aren't, don't love this friend because she doesn't wear a bra. And it's in the 70s, so you know that means that's bad. And um, they're going to a concert, and they're like, hey, on the way, let's score some weed. Before we head over, they meet a guy on the street. The guy brings him into this, like, dilapidated... I I hesitate to call it a house, or an apartment even. It's basically a room. Um, But there's, you know, four convicts that are staying in there, and then... They won't let these girls go, and they're just teenagers, and they rape, you know, the girls, and and they they kill them, and it's horrible, and it's sad, and that part is really drawn out, but then when the parents find out that there's some shit going on, and their daughter's missing, and then they find these four people that show up at their door, excuse me, three people, and they, like, want to have, like, they, they want somewhere to stay, and so the parents are like, yeah, you can stay here. And on one of the convicts' necks, he sees, uh, she sees her daughter's necklace. And so she's like, oh, shit, these people killed my kid. So her and her husband, they just kill everybody. And I love it. It's great. And even at the end, the cops show up and they're like, oh, no, like, no more killing. And then the dad's like, oh, sorry, we already did it all. Um, it's just smart. It's great. It is hard to watch, but I would say if you can allow yourself to get past the uh, camera work, because like it's an older movie, so typically an older movie is not gonna have like the steadiest hand. Um, like it's gonna be kind of shaky. It's it's almost filmed like you're there because it's an exploitation film, which I understand isn't for everyone. I really happen to enjoy them. If you can get past it, the camera's kind of shaky and it hasn't been remastered in a while. I really think that you will find it an enjoyable watch. Number 31, The Shining. We couldn't do a top 100 without The Shining. And if you disagree, then you can kiss my ass because it is one of those movies that you just, you just have. You just always have them and they're, they're, they, they're so influential because of, I would say, 60% because of who directed it, 
which is Stanley Kubrick. And if you are familiar with his work, you know he brought us 2001 A Space Odyssey and Lolita and um, A Clockwork Orange, which is one of my favorite movies, and, and this. And was Stanley Kubrick known for being like the nicey-nice, like David Lynch director? No. No, he wasn't. And nobody... Nobody tries to tell you otherwise. He wasn't. And he made these people's lives hell, I would say, for a little while while they were filming. Shelley Duvall, you know, admittedly says that she was never the same after this. You know, we have Jack Nicholson being a fucking nutcase because I honestly don't know if he has ever played a character that's not a crazy, okay? Like, he's crazy in his. He's crazy in... Uh, oh my God, what's the, as good as it gets. Okay. Like he's just crazy all the time. I'm like not convinced that he's anybody other than like a Robert De Niro. Like Robert De Niro plays like one guy, except for in Cape Fear when he plays a Southern type of guy. Um, but Jack Nicholson is just masterful in this. See, I love this movie so much. I can't even get to what it's about. A family heads to an isolated hotel for the winter where a sinister presence influences the father into violence where his psychic son sees horrific forebodings from both past and future. Directed by Stanley Kubrick, novel by Stephen King, screenplay by Stanley Kubrick, and starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Danny Lloyd. Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall, their kid, has like a character that lives in his mouth and you know he talks using his finger and he just keeps saying red rum over and over again which we come to find out is murder spelled backwards and jack nicholson is a recovering alcoholic and so him and his son and his wife go to this this um giant hotel which is a real place that you are welcome to go to i don't know that I have any interest in staying there. I would visit. I don't think I would sleep there. Anyway, they are going to be taking care of this hotel for a little while. And um, while they're there, things just start to unfold. Jack Nicholson is a writer and he he claims that he's writing. Uh, and, I, and he is writing. I'll give him that. Um, he's not writing a book. But he does do some writing and then he becomes violent and he becomes angry. And each person in this movie, each character has a different story to tell you and a different lens through which to look at all the things that are occurring. And um, one thing that I did think was really interesting is I was watching a documentary about The Exorcist and how it was made. And in this movie, I will find the name of it. But in this documentary film, they were talking about uh, mess-ups in the movie, like a goof, right? And a goof is basically just, like, something you didn't catch during editing and you, like, let it be released and everybody just kind of, like, is like, oh, okay, like, that happened, it's fine. It, it, obviously, it would be better if that didn't happen, but it happened, so we're not going to do anything about it. Well, in this movie, at the end... Jack Nicholson is running through a, uh, like a, uh, cornfield maze. Um, I, I guess it's not a cornfield, but like, it's a maze made out of hedges and, and brushery and things of that, of that kind. 
and it starts to snow and it's so cold, right? Cause it's snowing that if you were going to breathe, like in real life, if you breathe, you would see your breath. But Jack Nicholson takes a deep breath and you can't see it on the screen because it wasn't actually that cold because it wasn't actually snowing. And I just think that that's a fun little um, thing of information and just kind of funny. It's it's weird that there's so much breathing at the end. He has his mouth open a lot and like there's just no, there's no air coming out. Like there's no like visible breath you can see. It's just a, a funny thing. And it's kind of funny that it happened to Stanley Kubrick because he was like notoriously like so hard to work with. Uh, so it's just funny to me that he let this slip through the cracks. Okay, last one for this episode. Number 30, Dead Alive, originally titled Brain Dead. 1992 release, rated R, one hour, 44 minute runtime. I'm looking at the, if you know anything about this movie, I'm looking at the part on IMDb where it has the awards and it it says it has 14 wins and I'm just baffled at um, what what award could this movie ever have won? A young man's mother is bitten by a Sumeritan rat monkey. She gets sick and dies, at which time she comes back to life, killing and eating dogs, nurses, friends, and neighbors. This is written and directed by Peter Jackson. So, you know, he came a long way, right? He brought you Lord of the Rings, but he also brought you this absolute gem of a film and it stars timothy balm elizabeth moody diana penalver it is kind of a comedy i would say that it's kind of funny and it's disgusting it's absolutely horrendously disgusting it is a movie about at the end of the day it's a movie about a relationship between a mom and her son but this mom is so overbearing and like so over involved in her son's life that he, you know, he wants to go on a date and he lives with his mom. I guess I should say that. So like, she's so involved and he lives with her. He wants to go on a date with this woman and, and they go to the zoo. The mom follows the, the date. So she goes to the zoo as well. While she's at the zoo, she gets bit by this like rat monkey And then, um, like the next day or maybe two days later, like she's so sick. She like can't talk. She can't even drink any, any water or anything. Like she's really, really sick. And then she goes to put on her makeup and they're like in a rush because people are coming over to the house. And as soon as she like strokes her cheek with some blush, her skin just like falls off and it just, it never gets better from there straight up. It never gets any better. And then, you know, he, the son has a nurse that comes over and then she bites the nurse. And so then the nurse is all fucked up. And then you have the priest in the movie and the priest is killing zombies. And he's like, oh, I kick ass in the name of the Lord. Like, like there's just so many incredible, amazing things about this movie. I am pretty sure you can find it on YouTube. I know you can find it on YouTube for free. Oh, you can buy it because honestly, after you watch it, you're going to wish you owned it. So you should, you should buy it. You can buy it on Amazon prime. There is not a better horror comedy out there that exists other than this. There just isn't. It is cheap. 
it has so much blood. So much fake blood. I'm pretty sure I'll look it up, but I'm pretty sure there's not another movie that's ever been made that has more fake blood on it than this movie. And the best part about this whole movie, the best part is that, um, I feel like Peter Jackson at the end just got fed up with everything and he was like, fuck it, kill everybody. So like the, the guy, the main character, his uncle, I'm pretty sure it's his uncle or his cousin says he wants to throw a party in the house. So he invites all these people over. Well, then they all start biting each other, whatever. They all turn into zombies. It's fine. And then he and his girlfriend are tasked with like killing all these zombies. So they're killing the zombies with everything they can find, like lawnmowers, blender. They put babies in blenders, uh, but they're zombie babies. So it's okay. Like the movie just gets more and more ridiculous as time goes on. There's nothing more funny in a horror comedy than putting a zombie baby in a blender. Like, it's a masterpiece. I don't know what else there is to say. And so I'm not going to say anything else about it. I'm just going to leave it at that. If you disagree with me, keep it to yourself. I love this movie. You can disagree with me on any of the other movies, but just not this one. So thank you so much for listening. We are now going to be starting the next episode at number 29. So I would say that that is some progress, my final boys and girls. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being a part of this journey with me. As soon as I figure out how I'm going to format like the top 10, whether I'm going to do it all in one episode or I'm going to do it in a separate episode, you will be the first to know. Um, but until then, thank you so much. Don't ever forget that I am Sixth Avenue's very own final girl, and I will talk to you next time. <laughs>